Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know Just what you've done Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Stop Child Abuse Now, Scan Radio, show number 3107. And my name is Annie Marges. I'm one of the co-hosts for tonight. And we'll begin by reading the mission statement of NASCA. NASCA is the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse, and that's the organization that presents this show. And here's the mission statement. We have a single purpose at NASCA, to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas and neglect, And we do so with only two goals. One, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, CSA. Presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. Two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. And tonight's show is one of our Tuesday-Thursday Q&A call-in shows where we have a discussion with a survivor professional using an open mic forum. We feature a survivor professional co-host who will field topics brought to the episode by you, the listener. And you, the listener, can call in and have your topics featured on the show. This is a phone number for you to call, 646. 595-2118. I'll repeat that. 646-595-2118. Call in and be part of the show tonight. Tonight, the special co-host is Bill Murray from Los Angeles, our founder. 
Bill's recovery is 12-step based and spans some four decades. Sexually abused by numerous clerics, all men, between the ages of 11 and midway through high school, a minor seminary. He was also the victim of prepubescent pornography and even a two-week kidnapping. Bill was graced to have found Alcoholics Anonymous when he was 30 years old. The program not only helped him get clean and sober, but also gave him a place to give up his secrets and the tools by which he's recovered. He firmly believes one can use the 12-step process to heal from child abuse trauma and to find a way to a comfortable life. On these episodes, we welcome various co-hosts, survivor professionals who assist in fielding questions and lead a variety of topics suggested by our call-in participants. And everyone is invited to engage on tonight's show. Please visit the website, naasca.org. That's nasca.org. And now I see that Victoria is on the line, yay, and Lori is on the line, and Bill is on the line. And at this time, I would like to introduce you, Bill, to get us started on a topic. Hi. Are you there, Bill? Thank you very much. Yeah, I heard. I said this already, but I'll say it again. I appreciate your calling, um, calling, um, you know, bringing me on. Uh, and indeed, I am in uh, Los Angeles. The sun is just going down right now here at five o'clock uh, in the uh, evening, and I'm delighted to be here. I'm glad we have a few other people, and I'm looking forward to a, a nice discussion tonight. Right. Thank you. Victoria, would you like to say hi today? Oh, she just went to talk to someone who has called in. Welcome to that person. Um, I'll say hi. I'm Annie Marges, and I'm calling from Long Beach, California, and I am a survivor of childhood incest. And Lori, would you like to introduce yourself tonight? Hi, I'm Lori, still in New York for a month. Um, I'm also a NASCA family member and um, uh, recently returned on the panel. I'm very excited to hear your story, Bill, because this will be for the first time by voice. So this is an awesome night. It is an awesome night. Congratulations for being at that place in your life. Wow. Bill, shall we start with that story? Uh, sure. I, I have told it quite a few times, but I'm happy to do it again. I'm going to tell a sort of a shorter version than I normally do because I do want to save time for people to um, make comments or ask questions or, or bring up a discussion. In fact, I'll, I'll say this. I'm going to start my story um, from the beginning like most of us do, you know, my earliest life. And as I move forward, I'm going to invite you to stop me, to stop me uh, several times, where we can inject some of that discussion that I'm talking about. But Lori, I'm delighted to dedicate dedicate this time telling my story to you. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. (laughs) Uh, 
I know all the people on this panel except Philip. I'm forgetting to know Philip, but hi, Philip. Um, a little bit hard. And it's yeah. kind of, it's kind of uh, makes me smile because that's that's sort of the sense of what we were trying to do with Nashville. We're trying to build a community um, of, uh, of of survivors who are in recovery, uh, who are going to help each other. It's one person talking to another, and you know we're all on. Um, we're all on a healing journey, we call it, and uh, every person on the healing journey can help every other person on the healing journey. So it's a shared experience in that way. I didn't feel that way when I was growing up, though. I felt like I was the only one. You know, I was the only one. I felt like um, I was unique, different, and separate because of the, my birth story to begin with, which was that I was adopted uh, at a very young age. Uh, three months old, and my sister came along a year and a half later at four months old, and that's that was our family. We had a family of four. My mom and dad lived in New York City, and um, you, could, you couldn't have more than two children, believe it or not, back then. <laughs> uh, they wouldn't give you more because uh, there weren't enough kids to go around for the number of people that were wanting children. Of course, nowadays, somebody in, in New York and almost anywhere who want to have 10 kids, they can have 10 kids as long as they can, you know, as long as they keep showing up because there's such a need. And I just want to start the show by saying there is a huge need for uh, foster parents, for um, big brothers, for adoption, for, you know, all these things that have to do with children uh, who are out, out out on their own pretty much, don't have a parent. Uh, don't have a, older, a, a good uh, family. Uh, I want to make sure that we understand this because this was really the beginning of my child abuse, my my trauma. Let's put it that way. Uh, my family, as I said, consisted of four, and we were not related genetically, but we we looked similar. They tried to do that for the families. They matched, um, you know, in our case, it was blue-eyed blonde kids uh, with blue-eyed parents. <laughs> And um, you know they they um, they did it through Catholic charities. So my, I found out my birth mother, uh, her name, uh, just a little while ago, and uh, found out that I was originally from uh, Massachusetts. And my mother had uh, gotten pregnant out of wedlock and must have made her way to New York City to have the baby. And then she had already decided, I suppose, that she was going to give it up because she didn't keep me. And by only three months, I was I was at my parents' house. So um, now I my um, I could go through my whole pre-abuse childhood and relate it to being traumatically involved, uh, tra- uh, tra- traumatically experienced. I think that's that's not uncommon. We, we uh, as a rule, uh, as, the, as a group here, can look back and say, you know, this was damaged and that was damaged. There's very few of us that, that come to uh, tell our stories and, and, and where the, um, the youth that are, are even at the beginning of our youth was kind of, I'll say normal, put the quotes around it, air quotes, was, um, you know, like everybody else. It's not like everybody else. And that's our perception, that we are unique, um, that, you know, 
our pain is our own and no one will ever understand it. Now, my child abuse that identifies me and qualifies me for NASCA is sexual assault many, many times as a little boy at the hands of priests and brothers uh, in the Catholic Church because we were extremely Catholic and our family, you know, did all the sacraments and all the masses and ate fish on Friday and all that stuff. (laughs) Um, And um, we all went to all the uh, sacraments and so forth as well. Uh, And I was um, so involved in in Catholicism that, you know, everything revolved around the churches we we attended. Uh, And we, um, I mean, my Boy Scout troop was at the Catholic Church. (laughs) I just say, at the Catholic school attached to the church, you know, um, and, and things like that. It, we were, it was like a community around the church. Now, when I got um, uh, in, uh, into it a little later, I found out that, um, you know, that not everybody was um, the way they had been presented to me, taught me, uh, you know, up, upstanding uh, religious man, uh, there were a lot of them that were, quote, sinners, unquote. <laughs> but so was I. I knew that. But, you know, but anyway, uh, the one area that um, I was involved in that was really disgusting to me was I was sexually assaulted uh, by a priest, by a brother, at a summer camp. And he um, found uh, found me uh, kind of fascinated by not only the, the sex, which I knew nothing about sex until, until he touched me, uh, but also his um, camera equipment. He was the photographer for the summer camp, and I was I was desperately trying to find some kind of creative activity that I could get involved in and dedicate myself to because one of the things that was un, unlike my parents, uh, the parents that adopted me, was I had a lot of creativity in me, a lot of juices, you know, <laughs> and I didn't have a place to put them because my parents did not believe in uh, the arts for a career. Uh, so they did not uh, sort of send me in that direction. And as a result, I was always frustrated. But when this guy showed up and he had beautiful cameras, he had Nikon cameras, big bodies and long lenses and all kinds of equipment. He had a dark room. He, he rolled his own film. Uh, and uh, he, he taught me how to do all this. And then he, you know, he print, he developed the, the, the film and, and printed all his uh, all his pictures himself, and I was fascinated, you know. <laughs> and so he he got me. That was how he groomed me, you know, into staying around him. And uh, you know, I I went back to this summer camp three years in a row for a month at a time each time, and. Uh, he got more and more aggressive with me, if you want. Um, and until at the end of the third summer, he invited me to go to uh, Expo 67, which was a kind of a world's fair um, in, in in Montreal, Canada. And um, and he, he approached my parents with this idea. And, of course, they knew him very well because he had, he had been sending legitimate photographs home as well as you know, as well as um, the stories of the cameras and stuff, but he did not tell him, and I did not tell him that I was I was a 
victim of prepubescent pornography as his model for year for the whole three years. Um, and he would he would pose me uh, different ways uh, indoors and out. Uh, we'd go camping in the woods and so forth, and he'd take pictures there. We went canoeing, he'd take pictures there. This third year, this third year, at the end of the third year, my parents said, "Oh, brother, that'd be wonderful. I'm sure Bill would really enjoy going with you to Exo 67." So. Long story short, he got me to go with him, and it turned out that it was not an enjoyable trip. It was a um, it was a kidnapping, pretty much. Uh, a kidnapping in the sense that we didn't do anything that he told my parents we were going to do, and I couldn't get away from him. And the trip was going to last two or three weeks because we had to go up to Montreal and then back down. But really what we did was we uh, stayed around New York City uh, and Vermont, and we spent one night in Montreal. But he was he was fiddling with me and playing with me and taking pictures of me everywhere we went. So I remember under the boardwalk at Coney Island was one of the places that he that he took me, and he took me to uh, meet a couple uh, older man and a young boy and a kitten. And they had a kitten. The little the little boy, of course, was naked, sitting in the middle of the the king size bed. And they were, what they were trying to do was to get me to interact with the boy, and I was not interested in this at all. I'd, I'd never been asked to do anything to the the, the brother either, and I was the kind the, the thought of that, um, you know, just was not attractive at all to me. I I, I uh, turned him off over and over and over, turned away from him over and over and over when that came up, uh, but. You know, they tried to get me to interact with this kid and another kid at, at another place, and um, I kept saying no. And I think, as I said no, the more often I said no, um, the more frustrated the brother was getting. And uh, finally, he knew he had to take some pictures of me uh, in, in front of this, in front of the World's Fair. So we drove up uh, to Montreal. He posed me in front of the Habitat and a couple other things that were famous for that World's Fair and stuck me in the car and drove me home. Uh, he drove me back to the Port Authority, I guess, is what he did, because I had traveled by bus up to New York, and then I was traveling back by bus to where I lived in Virginia Beach. Now, um, this this was a horrible experience. I was shocked, of course, that, that this was going on. I, I had no inkling. That this trip was going to be like this, or that this relationship was going to end up like this. So, I um, I did not tell anybody. I went home, and uh, two or three weeks later, I was scheduled to attend uh, a minor seminary, which is a sort of a junior seminary for high school age boys who were thinking of becoming a priest. And so I went as a freshman in high school, uh, just weeks after this. Uh, this affair, <laughs> uh, three-year affair, and the kidnapping with him. Uh, and I showed up there, and I I was just devastated. And I was approached by one of the priests there who asked me, did I ever have any homosexual experiences? And I think it, it, it was because I was comfortable being naked. I'd done it so many times. And he found it strange, so he asked me that. And I said, oh, no, no, no. And he asked me three times. And the third time, I finally went to his room where we could talk, he said. And um, 
he he lived in the building that all this, the school was uh, occupied a, a building. There were only ninety of us in, in, in uh, of boys in the in the in the school, and my class had thirty at the beginning and fifteen at the end. So it was pretty uh, tough uh, school and very good education. But um, when he asked me to his room, I had no idea what was going to happen. I assumed that, thank goodness, here's a here's a priest that is going to help me. Here's, here's some help coming, you know. And so he encouraged me to tell him the whole story that I just told you in way more detail. Uh, and um, and at the end of it, he gave me absolution, which is forgiveness. Uh, he gave me some penance, which is uh, which is prayers that you say. Uh, in, in, to make it stick, <laughs> uh, and um, you know, I, I walked out of his room feeling like, "Wow, that's great! I, I finally got help," and I felt, you know, kind of light and stuff. Um, and I was very happy that he had had done that. Unfortunately, though, um, he was interested in me himself, and a couple of weeks later, I think it was, he approached me uh, sexually, and I was shocked. Uh, because he was the one priest that I had come to trust, and I told him my whole story. He, now I was really vulnerable. I wasn't just naked. I had given him my whole story, you know. Uh, and the first two years at this place, I um, I found myself running away from not only him, but some other priests and brothers and a couple of lay laymen uh, who were obviously pedophiles and were after some of the boys. I didn't know who else, but I knew that they were, and they were after me. was running away, trying to stay away from these people for the first two years. And the third year, I was a little better because I, um, I think because I got, I had a growth spur, and I was angry now. Uh, and I, I, you know, I had been, uh, I had been uh, so upset in the first two years that I almost, you know, flunked out of school both years, and I just came back by the skin of my teeth to finish those two years. And the third year, uh, because I was left alone and because I was angry, they knew not to come near me then, uh, you know, I I, uh, I clenched my fists, and sometimes I punched people, but I um, came came off, um, you know, unapproachable. Uh, and, and so the last two years, I did quite well in school, and I ended up... Uh, Graduating right in the middle of a 15-person class, <laughs> uh, number seven, which was very good. Uh, I had a number of 4.0 classmates, but I wasn't—I wasn't that. I was maybe 3.25 or something like that. But that was good, especially because of the first two years. Um, but I did know that I was not going to uh, continue into college at the place that I went to high school, and in fact. I had a problem with thinking I was going to go into the priesthood too. So uh, when it came to time to uh, apply for colleges, I I decided I would go to the University of Toronto, and that's where I attended. Uh, I went up there um, in my freshman year of college, and I spent I spent two and a half years in school. I spent three years there, uh, and I and then at the end of the two and a half years, I thought. You know, I'm I'm really not getting anything out of this. Let me let me think about what I want to do because I I didn't have any idea what I wanted. My head was still full of all this uh, sexual trauma. 
and my uh, and the and the fear that someone was going to walk up to me and say, "Look at this magazine! Isn't this you as a little boy naked here?" You know, <laughs> which never happens, but it was totally a fear of mine. And um, you know, I I uh, got into drugs and drinking, uh, especially drinking. Uh, Toronto in the college years was a huge drinking town, mostly beer. Uh, there were clubs and so forth, but there was also hard hard liquor. And uh, I then learned how to uh, use uh, pot anyway uh, in that year. And um, so now I was uh, trying to fix my feelings by doing drugs and alcohol, and uh, and and that pretty much worked. But of course, uh, as, as everyone knows, if you continue at that pace, and I was a I was a not a social drinker ever. You know, I was a dedicated hard drinker right from the beginning. And I was prone to oblivion. It happened a lot. I would pass out, and I didn't know how I got back to my room or my apartment. Uh, and I would throw out, throw up in the weirdest places, and it could be embarrassing, but, well, you know, you needed to do it. <laughs> I um, went back to, uh, to, to Connecticut, where my parents were now living, after my third year of college, and I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, so I decided I would go um, into New York City with a woman that was 13 years older than me, who was a next-door neighbor, and she had a husband and two children. <laughs> uh, she wanted to run away with me to uh, Brooklyn Heights, where she had had some of her earlier years, and I thought that was a good idea. Uh, pretty pretty much until we took some stuff down there. I found an apartment, took some stuff down there, and um, the first night that I spent with her in the apartment, I just knew it wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to to do this. So I took her home, and I let her out at her house and drove over to my parents' house, and I told them what I'd done. <laughs> then I had a heart attack. And by the way, I, I was prone to doing that to my father, giving him near heart attacks a lot. <laughs> uh, he said, how do you know that the guy's not going to come over here with a gun? And I didn't think of that, you know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> in the end, I, um, went, I, I did go to, to the apartment in Brooklyn Heights by myself, and I set up uh, uh, my own apartment, and uh, I lived there for, I think I had the apartment for 15 years. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I was, I was extremely depressed. Oh, my God. I was uh, morose. That's how depressed I was, and I was, I was, um, you know, in my in my bed with the covers pulled over my head for week after week on end, without coming out. The only time I'd come out was to, you know, maybe go across the street to the key food store, the grocery store, and buy a couple more, you know, things of beer, a couple, <laughs> and and come home. That was it. And um, I barely skipped by, but I did find odd jobs. Uh, I was a waiter for one place, uh, then later I was a, uh, uh, well, I was a dishwasher first, I think, and then a waiter, and then a, and then a manager and a bartender. And this was a place I kept going back to and leaving, going back to and leaving, going back to and leaving. And the gentleman that owned the place was a slightly older man. He was a friend of mine, knowing he and his wife and I and another guy uh, put together a, a bluegrass band and we, um, we we had that bluegrass band for 10 years. Um, 
And he, but he was the one that taught me because he was a little older than me. He was a true hippie. I was a I was on the back end of the hippie generation. He was he had been in it, and he um, uh, taught me about uh, things like acid. <laughs> and we tripped a lot. And uh, I I hated tripping. I did, I didn't get anything out of it, but I I knew I was supposed to get something out of it, so I kept trying. And I think this is also another hallmark of how we deal with things. We know it's not going to work. We've done it before. We just feel like we're doomed, but we try it again. You know, and that's what I did. Uh, I did all kinds of drugs, not, not just not just uh, this one, but I did. Uh, you know, I did cocaine. I did uh, poppers. I did pills of different kinds. I did hash. Well, my favorites, frankly, were were hash and pot. Uh, but I also I really liked uh, organic mescaline, which I was only able to put my hands on a couple, and uh, made me feel wonderful. <laughs> Uh, maybe it wouldn't have if I tried it the third time. I don't know. But I tried everything except what you could shoot. I, and that's how I told myself I wasn't an addict. I never shot anything. <laughs> I um, Eventually, uh, uh, I was a real estate salesman. And I did many, many jobs there. Heights. One of them involved uh, working as a real estate salesman. And I managed to arrange that I would, I would approach the landlords of a, of a big building on behalf of my broker, my, the man I worked for, and his partners. And I would get, uh, I would approach them with the idea that they should sell their building to us. And um, and if I did that and they were amenable and they provided all the, you know, the, uh, the rent roll and the, um, the billing and so forth for, for that building, um, that I would earn Ten thousand dollars, and I said, "Okay, I can do that." And I did. I did. <laughs> I approached them. They agreed. They gave me the rent roll. They gave me the, the, the bills and stuff to write down. And when I showed up and gave it to my broker, that was I was at the end of the, what I had told him I would do. Uh, I, I didn't make a promise beyond that point. So I went back to I went back to to the bar, and I worked for another year. And people were telling me, "How do you know he's going to come in here and give you any money?" Because it was it was going to come come in when the building closed. I said I believe him, and sure enough, he walked in one day and he handed me a ten thousand dollar check across the bar, and and uh, I quit uh, the bar um, that day and I went and applied for uh, for New York University, and uh, I went back to New York. I went back to college to New York University, riding the RR train up to up to Washington Square and back. Uh, and I lived in that apartment. And, uh, you know, I, um, I, I, I didn't do great. In fact, I didn't finish. But at least this time I knew what I was going for. And I was going for film, TV, and journalism. And uh, I made up a program, of, like a, a, a track, that you could do through what was called the Gallatin Division, where you could mix and match pieces from one discipline on another and that's what I did so I um, I, I had come up to just the edge of just about uh, uh, the last year and I quit which is another uh, thing I do <laughs> I quit and um, saying to myself well I, you know it's kind of like the star student there anyway so um, you know I didn't need to go anymore I, I was already and I I, uh, I was 
approached by a young lady who was in the in the one class that I was in uh, a year and a half before I uh, at the end of it there, who um, became you know my my living girlfriend for again 15 years, <laughs> and eventually um, my first wife and the daughter and the and the uh, mother of my child uh, Ashley, uh, and and it was June my wife that. Uh, convinced me we should go to California. So that's what we did. We pulled up stakes and went to California. I didn't give up the apartment. I knew better than that. <laughs> and in fact, I did come back and forth a couple of times, uh, a few times. Uh, and so I, that was the first time that I was carrying two, uh, two living spaces at once, which seems to be a pattern of mine too. <laughs> I've just recently done it again, but now I'm I'm only in California. Um, I think what I'm going to do is let you know that within, um, I say, two or three years, my going to California is when I met Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I met it through uh, another producer director guy, who um, you know I was able to do, I was able to produce now, I was able to direct. I, mean, I was right, you know that that the world was ready for me. I didn't need that those degrees. I just needed to keep getting jobs, and I was getting them. But then I decided I would go to um, I would I would uh, go to an AA meeting that one of my friends told me about because you know I drank a little too much. I mean I was drinking like all the time, really heavy, uh, and pot all the time, and I couldn't stop, and I didn't realize I couldn't stop. Never thought of it, but the truth was. After going to a few of these meetings, I'm going to cut it short now. I I uh, I did surrender. Uh, I did uh, stop drinking, turn my life over. My 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 soon-to-be ex-wife uh, and I split up, uh, and we got back together and split up. We got back together a couple of times, <laughs> uh, but I was uh, I had started to set boundaries. Something we talk about here. Uh, like the boundary that I couldn't, I wouldn't let June enable me. She was a huge enabler, not an alcoholic herself, but she'd rather see me drunk or, or stoned because I was easier to deal with when I was stoned. You know, uh, I don't blame her, but I uh, I set up a boundary that I wasn't going to let that happen uh, to me anymore. So this is um, this is where my recovery started. Now that was in 1984. And so I'm coming up on uh, my my 40th year um, of recovery in terms of uh, drinking and using drugs. But at the same time, I realized that um, the 12 steps, which I kind of dove my dove into, I knew I was sick, so I dove into the the recovery, um, and I knew that these 12 steps could be used for other things. I knew about um, Narcotics Anonymous, and I knew about, you know, Al-Anon and so forth, and ACA. Uh, they didn't have Narcotics Anonymous yet, I don't think. <laughs> but anyway, um, there were there were 3,000 AA meetings in the area, so there was never an excuse not to be able to go to them. And I dedicated myself to recovery, not only from the, from the uh, drinking, but also from child abuse, because I, I understood that 12 steps could be applied to any life problem that a person has. And if, if you do them diligently, 
that it can help you walk yourself through uh, the trauma of that. You know, it, it's a the process that I've used on a number of things, but the biggest have been obviously alcohol and child abuse. So that's how I I um, recovered from my trauma is I applied the same process that I applied to stopping drinking to the trauma that came from my child abuse. Um, there's a lot more to say. I'm going to stop here because the, uh, I want to give people an opportunity to jump in. And uh, so at this point, I'm stopping at this point because this is where I turn the, I turn the corner, start down the road of recovery. So I'll entertain any, any questions about the first part of what I said or, or anything anybody wants. Thank you, Bill. Does anyone have any questions or comments? I do. I do. I'm just going to okay. wait in the water, but, but I'm impulsive like that. I've never been so captivated in my life um, and so heartbroken for anyone than for you and what you went through. I became aware of how close-knit the church was through my husband's uncle between being a priest and up to a bishop. So I know it's like how the family functions around it and it's your world and you were totally betrayed at such a tender age and of beliefs and you You've come from a trauma of you didn't realize that at three months or whatever, three years that um, you were given up. But eventually that, knowing it, you know, that's another trauma for you. So you've had more trauma and more history than anyone I've ever heard of. And then I, you turn it around. You turned it around. You You, you were headed for a life that could have been the worst of the worst, but it didn't happen with you. You know, it's like you had the character, you had the the everything, the inner strength, whatever the gift God gave you, you had in you, and you turned your whole entire life around into helping other people, which I find to be the most amazing thing in the world, honestly. Well, thank you, Lori. I'm. Um, I want you to know. I the first thing I ever knew about myself was that I was adopted before I knew what the word meant. You know, because my parents never hid it from us. They always talked about adoption, adoption, adoption. So that what it wasn't traumatic in the sense that I found out about it later. It was traumatic later because I totally accepted it as a small child, as a young child. It was only later that I started to consider, I wonder why somebody gave me up, you know? <laughs> and I wonder That's why my trauma. mother. Yeah. That is the and trauma wonder, I'm talking about. Right. And and I wonder why my adoptive mother needed to adopt. And, and so these questions came in, but not right away. It came later. And I didn't realize I was kind of carrying the the weight of the of the uh, of the traumas. Like you said, these are these are true traumas. But I don't identify with that when, when I'm talking about being a child abuse uh, survivor. I, de- I identify with the sexual assault. That was unbelievable. Hundreds I don't know how you survived it. Hundreds of cases. Yeah, I don't know how you survived it. I can't imagine. I cannot yeah. imagine. 
Well, because of you guys. Thank you. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. You know, this is one of the things that um, that I incorporated into NASCA is the sense of community, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, you mentioned it as far as the sense of community for the church, and that's very true. I mean, our identity was all about being Catholics. And I had a big family, and all of us were, you know, were Catholics. We all did, you know, served masses and went to Catholic school and played on the, on the Catholic teams and, <laughs> I mean, everything. Uh, we celebrated all the holidays with each other um, in, a, in a Catholic way, Christian way. So, um, yeah, that's pretty heavy in and of itself, but I wasn't, um, wasn't really upset with that. Uh, until later, and I realized that, you know, I was, I was really badly used as a, as a young boy for the sake of uh, some kind of gratification from men. And that was. Disgusting. They're animals. They're yeah. they're all animals. Yeah. Well, thank well, you. Thank you, Bill, for sharing. Thank you, Bill, for sharing. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned uh, uh, the grooming thing. And uh, I was uh, molested by a neighbor, and I really don't know when it started. I just remember uh, we all go over, like, he had a lure for all the neighborhood kids, and he had a big, huge strawberry pitch in his backyard. So that was that was the lure, and all the kids in the neighborhood were coming over there. Um, at different points, you know, he'd invite people, kids old and uh, picking strawberries, and then he'd invite you in his porch to play a game called Risk. Um, and uh, I, I don't like that game. But <laughs> anyway, um, not Risk, sorry, Trouble. That's what it was, Trouble. Uh, so I would say Trouble. <laughs> it was Trouble. But, um, but yeah, he uh, raped a three- and four-year-old girl and around the neighborhood and asked kids, you know, did that man, Mr. Bill, I'm just going to say his name to you, you know. And uh, my grandma, who, uh, who adopted me, but not until I was older, but I lived with him since I was a year old, um, you know, looked out at me in horror and fear and everything else and said, if something happened, tell the police officer. And, you know, I looked up at her and was just a great big tall cop there standing and I said, yeah, he did, you know, and then I had really no idea what, you know, was going on, but I was at his house one time, because everybody thought they were my parents, said, um, do you tell your mom everything that was going on over here? And I said, yeah, and my grandma was Catholic, basically told us if we lied, we'd go to hell. So I knew I was lying, but right when I said, yeah, I tell her, it stopped for me, you know, the touching. But it didn't stop for my brother because he was he was feeding him too, and and then find out find out it was little kids in the neighborhood in Charleston, you know that was his lure that was his groom technique was you know um, the strawberries and then inviting you and play that game trouble, and uh, um, I remember came my brother into the back room and stuff and just not even knowing what the heck is going on you know, and uh, um, but yeah. That um, didn't, you know, didn't really make any sense to me, and and so in my mind, I was going to burn it all, but I didn't care because the abuse, stopped. you know. Um, but but yeah, it was weird because my grandma was Catholic, and 
my, my grandfather was a Methodist, and they said, we don't go to church because we don't want to argue about religion, you know. So uh, um, they didn't, you know. My grandma kind of distorted the Bible um, to, to saying different things are in the Bible. <laughs> Most religions do, um, believe me. Yeah. <laughs> What's but I never went to church, you know. And then, so she said to me, she says, you need to be, you know, 13 or something. I need to be uh, uh, baptized or I was going to hell or I was going to hell. You know, since when I was little, I was, you know, lied about that and some other stuff. And anyway, um, she, um, you know, sent me to catechism and they didn't like me there because uh, I asked questions and apparently I wasn't there to ask questions. I was scared of memorizing what they're telling me. And, and so they didn't, you know, but I got baptized, confirmation, and first communion all at once. And they told me I didn't have to go to confession um, because um, I didn't know I was sitting. <laughs> but it was like, I always felt like I knew things that were happening were wrong, and I knew some of the stuff I was doing was wrong, you know, because kids do things um, against the rules or whatever. But, um, but that was good to me. <laughs> but I was grateful. I want to go in a little tiny booth. I was after for anyway. <laughs> but that's the whole thing is, is that yeah, we don't um, sometimes recognize um, that stuff that happens. I came home at I don't know how old I was, probably around that time. And the neighborhood had told me that those weren't my parents; those were my grandparents. And I came home crying. And I said, that's what the neighbor said, and they're so mean. And this is, my grandma said, no, it's, you know, your mom didn't want you. Your dad and your mom didn't want you. Your mom was going to adopt you. Anybody else wanted you. So we had to take you. <laughs> and then they went to tell, she went to tell me how much money they had, this and that, and now we got this old stack. I never felt like, you know, my, my um, uh, knowing that I was adopted story is completely different. But trauma, I always felt, um, I always felt uh, um, being afraid of being abandoned by people. You know, it just, I don't, they got some, you know. Oh, I had fear of abandonment too. That was a big one. Yeah. Big one. Yeah. 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 So right, I so, clung on so let people me, all fear. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, let me make the point that I was trying to make a while ago, and I, I dropped it. I went aside, but I yeah. think it's important. I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I've applied the um, principles and the, and the tools that I've learned in other places to NASCA. And one of them is the sense of community. Because, frankly, when I found out that um, I, I was suffering from alcoholism, I didn't know, um, you know, I went to places to try and get help that were not helpful. And the same thing with my child abuse, the, the sexual abuse. I went to places and I found out there weren't any places, not for boys. You know, there were there were some women's shelters and things like that, but um, not for boys. So when I when I uh, used the twelve steps myself on myself, um, part of that was to, to was to create a, a space where I could be comfortable living in my own skin, as I always say. Um, and you know, over time. Every day I recovered from drinking, I recovered also from, you know, child abuse issues, trauma from child abuse. So mm-hmm. uh, that's that's kind of part and parcel of the story that I 
carry, and I couldn't carry it unless it had happened the way it happened. So I, I want people to understand that I don't regret the past anymore. Um, but I, uh, you know, I would have preferred it went a different way, but it didn't. <laughs> I don't yeah. regret the past. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. I wasn't really able to deal with my abuse either until I got sober. And I, I can really yeah. identify pretty much the day that the fog lifted over my brain, you know, lifted up off my brain. And and I was yeah. really able to look at things. Unfortunately, I had somebody who was in the program that that I could talk to about the other stuff too because there weren't people back in talking about the abuse. And, you know, I think I met you about 10 years ago. And, uh, right. you know, when I went on the radio show, I said, welcome to the NASCAR family or whatever. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, cause that's how I felt about AA and the recovery program. You know, I told okay. him, I said, you know, I can't go around my own family. Says, uh, you know, I chose you guys to be my family. And then you said that. I went, yeah, you know, we can't pick our own families, but we can choose our own family. And right. I, I have always felt very, very welcomed by NASCAR. And I think you did a fantastic job. Like I said, I can't praise you enough for all the information that's on that website. I, you know, I've been exploring it all this time, and I know I still haven't seen everything on it, you know. And it just amazes me that how many people have done Google searches and found NASCAR, you know. Um, it, it's just a fantastic fantastic thing in, in that you based it on the traditions, which I totally agree um, is a great foundation, um, especially that, um, that you know, it, people um, like that come to the peer support group, you know, they don't have to put their own names on there. They don't have to share their faces. You know, even on the, on the electric radio show, people on, which we might servers and professionals, but you know, the big survivors are listening. Um, big Bill or one of the um, people on NASCAR, there's, there's a list of people on the Minnesota Ambassador. I'm on there as well. Um, if you contact us, then uh, we could we could tell you how you can get on the show and share your story. And I tell you what, when I first came on there, it took a lot of shame away. I was scared to death, but but you guys made it really great. The Black Dark Radio Show yeah. so. I appreciate that, and I just want to share with everybody else that there's an opportunity, and um, there's a lot of opportunities in NASCAR. You know, every little bit helps. Yes, thank you for that, Victoria. It was really nice of you to say. Let me me go to Philip and see if he'd like to make a comment tonight. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. Philip? Are you there, Bill? Uh, would you like to make a comment tonight? Um, well, thank you for sharing your story. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, maybe someday you'll do that. I mean, we all do it eventually, but we don't pressure anyone into doing it. But I believe that, you know, the, the second part of the show here now, the last 30 minutes of more, are going to be about the solution and how it's applied from the perspective of someone that's trying to heal from childhood trauma. And one of the things I will definitely talk about is that uh, we're as sick as our secrets. And um, now that you're showing up, you're giving up your secret a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. But, of course, when 
when Victoria came on the show for the first time and told her whole story, um, she was terrified. I can tell you, she was terrified. Everybody is, but, but it's also it's okay uh, because the, the people around you, like the panel here, really support you and encourage you, and you end up, like Victoria said, with a kind of weight lifted off your shoulders and and feeling like you belong, and, you know, and and glad you did it and so forth. So. That'll happen or not, we'll see. But um, uh, you, you'll always be welcome is the point. So Now, I was just about to call on um, Annie in case she wanted to make a comment before we move forward. And there she is. Hi, Annie. Hi, Bill. Thank you. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. I made a couple of notes while I was listening to you, and I wanted to say... I totally identified with those parts of your story. One of them was the hibernation period. I went into hibernation and saw no one and talked to no one and wouldn't go out the front door for about a year. Right. And, um, yeah, so I, I relate to being completely incapacitated by my anxiety and fear. And the other one was the fear of hell. Uh, the, the fear of hell was a big part of my being abused. It was a very religious family, and you were supposed to look at your father like he was God, you know. And so that was very confusing to me. Um, and I, I believed I was damned. When I was in the fifth grade, I had a breakdown. Uh, because I thought I was going to hell and that there was nothing I can do about it because you have to do what your dad says, you know. I was in the catch-22. <laughs> so those are the those are the two things I wanted to identify with. Thanks. Well, uh, 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 I'll talk about the second one more than the first because um, uh, it's important that we understand that the way we were brought up, we were it was all black and white, you know, um, and there weren't any choices. You either did it or you didn't do it, you know. And among the things yeah. you didn't have any choices about was what they considered sins. And a sin on your soul, you know, uh, could uh, could end up sending you at least to purgatory and maybe to hell. You know, purgatory being a, mm-hmm. a stop before hell, which you stay in until the end of time. So it's it's not comfortable either. But that's all, that's all we had to look forward to because nobody went to heaven. Nobody. We all were sinners, and therefore we all had to suffer, at least purgatory. Well, I'll tell you what. I found a way in AA, and it was in AA that I, um, I dealt with that. And that's how I, since I dealt with it in AA, I was able to apply it to my child abuse as well. And that is that I came to believe that uh, that God, you know, it says that you can come to believe in a power greater than yourself that can restore you to sanity. That means you get to create your own God. Wow, that was such a concept. And I didn't know what that meant, but after after searching around for the meaning of that phrase, come to believe in a power greater than ourselves, um, I, I developed uh, the concept that I could... I, you know, people people said, you know, if, if the ocean is what you want for your higher power, it could be because it's more powerful than you. Well, I didn't want that. I wanted some God. I believed in God, 
I just didn't believe God could be that way, you know. So I eventually applied, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurry this along so I can get some other stuff on here. But I eventually applied the the, um, the sense that um, you know God is everything positive and nothing pejorative. So I and I specifically gave him uh, attributes like yeah, God was loving, but he wasn't just loving; he was you know infinitely loving. And he wasn't just understanding, he was infinitely understanding and so forth. And I went through everything and I gave him characteristics like that, except that in every case, uh, he, 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 he um, emerged as someone who was infinitely whatever the good stuff was and, and had none of the bad stuff. That's pretty good, God. <laughs> and uh, it didn't, he didn't even have a picture. I gave up God's picture, you know, um, like of the old man on the mountaintop with the lightning bolts, you know. Uh, and I gave up, uh, I gave up any picture of God because um, it got in the way of my being able to actually believe in Him. That I could, that I, I had to concentrate on these pictures. So really, if I had to tell you what my God was like, it was more like the Holy Spirit than anything else. Uh, and uh, those those of you who are Catholic are, are, will understand what I'm saying. The Holy Spirit is the third person, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't have a picture. There's no, you know, mental painting of him in our minds. We usually represent him as a dove, sometimes fish, think tongues of fire, things like that, but never an image. So anyway... I, I found a way around all those things that I wasn't cheating when I did them. I just was following direction, and it really worked. It really worked. Um, it was, I was able to forgive uh, men. I was really pissed off at men because I, I assumed every man, uh, especially every, every homosexual man, was a, um, was a pedophile. And now I found out, because I, I met some homosexual men in the, in the AA groups, that they weren't pedophiles. They were just there to get sober just like I was. And that's what they said to me. And, you know, right away, uh, there was a melting of the hostility between myself and and, and other groups, especially people like men, that never came back. You know, it it was amazing. So a lot of this happened in the first couple of years of my recovery because I was so intense with it. And then it went away a little bit, and then it came back. Just, again, it's kind of like recovery. You don't, you know, healing from child abuse, it's not a straight line, and neither is being sober. It's not a straight line. You know, it's three steps forward and two back, and five steps forward and two back. So in general, what we want to do is we want to move forward, uh, forward but not hold ourselves to the highest standard that, if we ever, you know, take a step backwards, we'd fail. No, we not fail. You know, you just get back up on your saddle and try it again. Um, I, I, I can go through the steps. I've done that before, too, and described how each one applies to, uh, how each one can be applied to a program of recovery. But I want to stress here that, you know, another thing that NASCA did uh, was it incorporated the sense that that, we, you know, I don't know. You know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, 
which is kind of refreshing, I think, that you know, someone who starts a group could say, oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I didn't set up a set of things that had to be followed, in other words. Uh, now, there's a lot of groups that do, but I don't believe in that because it would, it would be uncomfortable for me to enter into a group where I, was, I had to follow a set of rules and so forth or a, set, a program that if I ever got off track of it, I would fail. You know, I would feel a failure. So NASCA doesn't have it. It doesn't have any rules. It doesn't have a, doesn't have a program. It has um, suggestions, but at the same time, we acknowledge that there are many ways that you can recover and heal. Uh, whichever one is more comfortable for you, that's the one you try. And it can, that can include psychiatry and psychology and therapy and life coaches, of course, but it can also mean, um, you know, uh, 12 step programs, right? Nonprofit groups that have their own rules and their own way of meeting. It can be, um, you know, it can be uh, EMDR, eye movement desensitization. Uh, it can be uh, hypnosis. You know, anything that can add to your chance at, at healing. So it can be animal therapy and art therapy and, you know, many, many things. And who's to say you're wrong? Follow animal therapy. You know, I won't. I love animals, and I, I, um, you know, I, I don't know if I know what's the best for you, and I don't know what the best is for me necessarily. So it's all okay is the point at NASCA. And, you know, we, we talk about all these things because we don't want to uh, sound uh, so structured that you have to follow rules. You don't. If you can follow some suggestions, like the 12 traditions, which are on the front page of the website, and those are really useful to uh, see the structure of an organization, how the structure of an organization can be built that makes it comfortable for the group to exist without a lot of money, without hard leadership, without a constitution, you know, without bylaws. <laughs> um, we are, um, you know, we're, we're really pleased with, I'm really pleased with saying that. I'm really pleased with where we've gotten, but I know we're not done. Uh, there are, you know, thousands of people out there still, of course, who need what we have and uh, can benefit greatly from our reaching out to them and explaining the simple path, the profound but simple path that we have for them to follow to recover from trauma. Well, I'll stop there and ask if there's another question or anything. Otherwise, give me a sense of what direction you'd like me to take this in, because we have 25 minutes left or so. Mm -hmm. Thanks, I'll jump back in. So I was just going to say that Philip has left now. So who we have left on the line is Lori and Victoria and Annie and Bill. And I, I don't again? have anything to say. <laughs> yeah, yes, please I do. do. <laughs> I always do. I, I've got such an education today um, that, you know, I had questions when I first came on NASA because it was all there. And for me it was like coming on. And uh, from listening to the people and listening to, to the show and whatnot, I had to piece together how it worked. And I was able to do that, even though I do it in a different way than other people. Um, so I basically you know, was on the panel for a, for a while. I don't remember how long, but then I got sick in the middle of it. Uh, but 
now that I'm back, it's like a, a re-education, which I have, I have to learn. And coming from your voice, it sticks in my head because I don't catch on from reading something. I only do it from hearing. So I always did wonder about the 12 steps, and I wondered if it had to be a lifetime thing. I mean, is there ever a time that you can, like, not... Well, I guess just say I'm finished with the 12 steps and I'm fine, or does it go for the rest of your life? Because I thought I was done healing, but apparently I'm not. Well, I haven't lived the rest of my life, so I can't answer that absolutely. (laughs) But I can tell (laughs) you that. um, That that was a dumb question. (laughs) It it seems to me that the best... No, it's a dumb question. I hear that a lot in the program. I also want to say that... um, one of the steps is continue to practice these principles in our affairs. So that means that no matter what, we practice the same type of principles in all the areas of our life. So it, my answer to you would be yes. Um, I, I'm going to have to do this till my last breath because these things are, you know, set up not just for being an alcoholic and a drug addict, but all of my life, um, you know, um, take an inventory um, and go, hey, what, what's worked for me and what hasn't, you know, and, and, you know, maybe I said something to somebody I shouldn't have said, you know, and go back to them and, and just say, hey, you know, I shouldn't have said that and I'm sorry and, you know, I still want to be your friend and I made a mistake or whatever, you know, and, um, you know, just just state that I was wrong. You know, my grandparents could never say they were wrong in parenting. It was so important to me. That, that I could go to my kids and say, you know, I did that or said that or whatever, and I was wrong. Or let them come out and say, Mom, why are you doing that, you know, and, and actually express your opinion or say, you know, I want to do this or that with my life and why are you making me go to this, you know. Um, so, so I think it goes in all areas of your life and just – building relationships with people is such a big part of the whole thing because I didn't know how to have friends. I didn't know how to have healthy relationships. I was never taught that. I was never taught boundaries. I was never taught, you know, this is all part of it. Is just learning and growing is really all that it is, I think. Well, that's a big wow for me, Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for only efforts to make me understand this. I, I think I do. I really think I do. Yeah. And, and for me, I love to go out in nature because when I was younger, my grandparents would get together with my other grandparents up in northern Minnesota and out in the woods, and they'd all, that was their drinking on the weekend. And, of course, I didn't want to be around that, so I'd go out and hang out in the woods, you know. And my grandma had a four-wheeler, and I'd get on that four-wheeler and just, you know, Put around in the woods because she had baths back there, or I'd just get up and go make a campfire, or I'd go out and feed the squirrels, or I'd go walk, you know, in the woods and and sit down on the ground and just I found peace there, you know, and and so I just got a just got a house and I made two areas in my yard that are my meditation areas, you know. Now we got snow everywhere, but I still have my meditation areas and and do meditation. Prayer is just asking, you know, your higher power for help, and meditation is listening for the answer and, and not demanding that, you know, 
my higher power does it my way, you know, giving up that power of control, which I always wanted to control everything and, and just accept it, you know, staying sober and drug free to me is the easy part. The hard part is living life on life's terms. And that's why I continue to go to meetings because I need to make sure I stay on that, that path of living life on life's terms and getting support from other people. And that's what I get at NASCA is support from other people that have been there, you know, that have survived abuse. That's what I want. Well, and that's and that's um, really important with the sense of the community because that's we lean on each other and we share with each other. But I do want to say, Lori, that um, you know because we don't um, dedicate ourselves to any one path, that any path is 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 worth trying. So when I mention you know psychiatry, psychology, therapy, you know life coaches and all all the things, and I'm just saying that all those things so that uh, a newcomer can think about them and maybe select the one that seems to make the most sense to them at this time. But you don't, um, you don't stay necessarily in the same place for your life. You look, at, you, know, you look for this and you look for that. And I, um, I, just, I don't believe that you have to want, start in one place and stay there. In fact, that's not how I got into AA. I tried all kinds of stuff. Where I found AA, <laughs> and I did stay there. But um, I've also done other stuff after that. But the point is that you know you just try try with your sincerely try uh, doing therapy. And if therapy doesn't work well, go to a life coach. Try that. You know, don't wait. There are too many people who uh, they start down a path and they um, they get stuck in that path because they think they have to. Again, with quotes around it. They have to follow that. There's no other choice. Well, that's not true. There are, there are a bunch of choices, as you can see, and, you know, we have to sincerely pick the one that we think we'll, we'll get the most from, but also be uh, aware that, you know, just because you pick one doesn't mean you have to stay with it for the rest of your life. Uh, some yeah. of us will. Victoria will, and so will I. I know, but, but you know, but that's not true with everybody. Now, um, and and it might all, it also might be a combination of things. For instance, I yeah, do see a therapist and a psychiatrist, and have gotten a lot of help from the mental health system, and I also got a lot of help from the um, social services, which which um, helped me a lot in my life to date as well, you know. And um, also, um, um, I've I've gotten a lot of help um, from looking at somebody that I admire and and go, I wonder what they're doing in their life to get where they're at, you know, and asking them questions. So, I mean, there there can be a variety of things um, that you do. Um, for me now, I'm trying to start an exercise program. I'm starting to eat healthier because I have eating healthy. Where the places I was in, I didn't have access to food um, like I do now, you know, so I can eat healthier. So I'm just, you know, trying to change the stuff in my life. So there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of ways to go. And uh, um, I hadn't been in with a psychologist because I just didn't find somebody that was a trauma-based um, therapist for years, you know. And and I finally found this lady that I go in there and I feel really good when I leave. And, and so I see her, but I still go to AA meetings. And I have a lot of friends there, you know, just like I have a lot of friends in NASCA. Like I have a lot of friends that, 
you know, our our parents that, that maybe didn't raise their kids. Like for me, I put my kids in permanent foster care, my choice, I have to say, uh, because I couldn't, you know, it was the hardest decision I ever made, but the best. Um, I couldn't be the mom I wanted to be, and I couldn't be the mom that they deserved to have, you know, that they needed. And I had to make a really, really hard decision. But I am really grateful that I did because my kids wouldn't have even graduated from high school and wouldn't be doing being as healthy, you know, and functioning as they are today because they weren't in that place when I had them. And they needed structure, and that's something I couldn't give them. And, say, and so I, I still do a whole variety of things. It's It's not just... AA. It's, you know, a combination of a whole bunch of things that work for me, but we're all individuals. And, but I like what Bill said, you know, just being, being open to try new things, you know, well, maybe that, you know, maybe that uh, art therapy might work, you know, um, for me, or maybe, you know, something else might work. So, you know, I like, I like to try to just in- investigate things that have helped other people as well. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Pretty Mm -hmm. amazing. I'm glad to hear from you, Bill, because you know when you're you're at the age where you're you know backing down a little bit, it'll never be out of your system and whatnot. But I don't want you to stop doing you know what you've created and and still are doing. I want to know that there's going to be a bill 15 years from now, you know, still enjoying part of his life and still attached you know it's kind of weird what i'm saying but i want i feel better knowing that your your future still includes nasca because this is where you pick up all the different ways to heal and it takes time to get to the right one like for me Mm -hmm. you know i know mine was like you know art and donating things that makes me feel good inside um, but I hear stories, and people still need help, and this is where they come. So you being here as just the founder, the one who could create something like this, is is unbelievable. It makes me feel better. Well, I appreciate that. That's the idea. We get we get better together. You know, uh, we suffer alone. Definitely, we need each other. It's a big difference. Well, and you, you talked too, Bill, yeah. about even after you're gone, um, your legacy or the legacy of NASCA um, is is to continue, you know. And uh, so those of us that, you know, I'm telling them to live to be 100. I don't know about any of you. But, all, you know, in my heart, NASCA is going to keep going um, because there are many members that, that are going to come and, you know, pick up the sword if you want to say, or, you know, um, um, and, and we still need uh, volunteers, which I'm going to put out there. Um, and anybody can volunteer. Um, we've got a whole bunch of stuff that, that people can help with. And every little bit helps. Coming on the radio show and being a panelist, that helps because you're sharing a little bit of your story. Somebody might tune in 10 years from now to this particular show and say, oh, my goodness, you know, Lord was talking about, you know, donating and how that makes her feel good, you know. I do that, you know. That makes me feel good too. Or or whatever, you know, you talked about your your um uh needlework, you know. And and maybe somebody didn't know that other people, you know, feel good when they do that and and you know, you're giving people uh insight 
into what your healing process is too. So every everybody that comes on, even if you come on and uh, um, you don't even talk, you know, to us it's very, very important to know that people are listening, you know, and people are getting something out of it. So that helps too, just to let people know just showing up is is very important. And even coming on the the support groups at, you know, the the meetings on, or not the meetings, but the group on on uh, Facebook, you know, and, and just putting a like on somebody's post, that helps that person, you know, or giving a helpful comment, that helps that person. That is going to help other people that look at it and go, hey, you know, I like what they had to say in response to what that person shared. Just the support of, hey, I'm really glad that you're here, or, you know, Hey, I like how you did that. I mean, just the simplest little words, a smile at somebody you know, on the street that looks like they're gloomy can change your whole day. So it doesn't cost a whole bunch of money. To, like Bill said, you know, we got to keep the cost minimal because it doesn't cost a whole bunch of money for for you just to be a kind person and support. Wow. I, I read the group page, you know, and whatnot, and I always feel like I'm rude if I jump in on somebody's conversation. So I just kind of let it be. I should probably stop doing that. Well, I would say don't shit on yourself because it's like shitting on yourself. (laughs) You know, if you feel comfortable, if you feel comfortable to support somebody, um, support them, you know, and uh, um, like, you know, we're a family and we're going to make mistakes and none of us are perfect. For God's sake, none of us are perfect. And, you know, we're all learning and we're all growing and we're all changing. You know, change is just part of life. And, you know, you change by coming back. You know, that was a that was a big change. And uh, we're glad you're back because it means a lot. Oh, thank you. It, it feels like, like family, like home, you know. I never thought right. that I would be able to come back. As the doctors told me I wouldn't, but look where I am. I mean, I occasionally will actually, you know, email Bill. I mean, can you pick up any speech problems or my thought process or, you know, because I don't really know how I sound, but I feel like I'm home again. Yeah. Well, it was really great when you gave me a call, you know, and we talked a little bit, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. So I that, had to tell that, you I coughed off the Yeah, I felt a little bit. I thought you were... Because I caught, that was what happened. I, I was coughing so much I had to hang up. And I didn't want you to yeah. think that I just hung up, so I had to tell you. Sure. So, sure. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, that was, a, you know, that was a connection. And uh, yeah. um, I I learned the other day um, watching a TV show, which, you know, I never think I'm going to learn anything watching the TV show about recovery, but they were talking about why, why uh, um, or, you know, people have tea. And they have tea at the same time every day. And their belief is that you can sit down with a cup of tea even with the same person or different people at the same time of day. And no experience is ever going to be the same. That experience that you're having right there with that person at that moment is never going to be able to be recreated. With, you know, even though the tea is the same, the teacups are the same, whatever, the experience that we have between each other, that connection and and that's what I think I recovery is about is the connections. It makes sense. It does make sense. You know, in my case, I've been so cut off, 
you know, from real people because you know, of my son that time's gone by and I'm not where I'm supposed to be. But I learn. I keep, you know, when I come, since I've come back, I've learned so much. You know, in the beginning it was awkward for me and I had a lot of anxiety. That's the one thing I did have. But it worked, It seems to be working out. So, you know, I'm, anything that works out for me, I just stick with. You know, there's nothing else that I can do right now that would change me. You know, I am still who I am, and this is where I feel comfortable. Well, I'm well that means a lot that. that you can tell some people that yeah. I think is a goal. I agree. Uh, I mean, I, we're going to get Philip on the panel, I bet. This is what I'm counting Maybe. on because he's talking more and more. Uh, we'll see. It's up to him. You know, uh, I don't want to push him. I push anybody I know who needs help to to come to NASCA. This is where okay. they're going to get fixed. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, I, I've always, um, you know, ever since I um, met Bill and, and found out about NASCA and stuff, I've been referring people. Um, I'm the Minnesota ambassador, so I have business cards, and I meet a lot of people in the program. I meet people, you know, I talk to a lot of people. And uh, even if, like, lately it's been it's been a lot of parents that um, um, people that I met at AA that come up to me and say, I know you're an abuse survivor, and I got some little kids, and, you know, I don't want my kids to be hurt. And how can I talk to my kids about, you know, sex, about, you know, um, boundaries about this, that, the other thing, because they weren't taught those things either, you know. And and so they're asking me, and I go, oh, there's a part of this organization that I belong to that talks about that. I'm, you know, and here's the here's the deal, and you go to this part of the web page, you know, and I know professionals that have asked me to, and I've referred them to go on to NASCA and say, you know, here's some information. Um, there's a lot of good information on there, and the professionals that I know are going there as well and, and learning about, you know, and learning from survivors. That's the important part. Like when I started working in 1986 with Better Women's Shelter and I would go to conferences, it wasn't survivors talking. It was the shelter staff talking about the people they worked in and their interpretation of those people. It wasn't actually survivors that were expressing, you know, and that's what ask is you know, adult survivors of child abuse, not for child abuse, of child abuse, you know? And and so it's about listening to survivors, not somebody telling us, you know, who we are. <laughs> we get to tell who we are, and we're all individuals. Yes, we do. We are. Well, so. um, yeah, Bill, you made... Tell me more. Whatever you can fit in, I want more. It's, 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 it's what you make of it, okay? Nobody is forcing anybody to do anything at NASCA, nothing. But um, you're invited to do all kinds of things. I believe there's 30-something tools and services and programs and, and plus tons and tons of resources. The radio show and the health and the healthcare, um, and the mental health uh, meeting on Zoom, uh <laughs> There's things over and over and over. We, ca- we carry a calendar of events, which carries um, information about, uh, uh, you know, uh, unique events that happen through the 
through the through the year. Uh, we also have um, we also have um, a, a, a groups and services tool that's unique to us, where we have tried to find every um, every every group that meets regularly uh, that's devoted to child abuse and trauma, but nothing else, because as you as you'll see if you read our our mission statement, we have a very simple purpose, and that's deliberate too. That we only address issues related to child abuse and trauma, and that we are we have two goals: to educate the public, and to offer hope and healing to each other to adult survivors. That's it. So other other things outside of the scope of those two things, uh, you know, don't belong here. And we we'll you'll hear that occasionally when somebody starts down a path that would be inappropriate and. Uh, they get stopped by the host of the show, for example, and say, well, we don't talk about gun control, you know, <laughs> whatever. Because we don't. That's too divisive and it doesn't belong in our mission. So, you know, you can make of what you want of this. But I would recommend that you uh, keep it simple. Uh, don't try to make it more than it, it is. Uh, you can certainly volunteer for NASCA. You'll, you'll gain an appreciation, believe me, if you volunteer for NASCA and you take on some role uh, because that's what it takes. We're all volunteers, including me. We're all volunteers who work from their own home, uh, I assume with their own, you know, laptop and cell phone or whatever. (laughs) Uh, And we um, support each other that way. And you know what? We have found that you can get a lot of support through a laptop, you know, a lot. It's, It's plenty, actually. Uh, it's the sense of uh, chatting that we used to have uh, about, about around the late ni- late nineties and so forth. That it was fascinating to have chat rooms, and you realized that you could actually make friends in chat rooms and stuff. And that was kind of shocking to me, to be honest. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but it's I true. also and, want to say, Lori, before we end, is that Lori, you're also a volunteer because you are spreading the message about NASCAR and letting people know that that there's hope and healing here and that's that's a part of it too you know so you are a volunteer oh yeah, yeah. I mean I, I push it as much as I can and I do have that page with a list of stories on it yeah. I always will do that well um, any other Questions or comments? We have only a very short time. Three minutes. Um, I do want to say um, that that we have a Zoom uh, support group uh, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays, and um, and then I just want to read our serenity prayer that we put at the end. So please grant me the opportunity to stop beating myself up for not doing things perfectly, the courage to forgive myself because I always try my best. And the wisdom to know that I am a good person with a kind heart. And uh, that that really helps me a lot. Absolutely. So um, I recommend you keep it simple. <laughs> you keep coming back. You keep to yourself what you hear here. We don't like to share things outside of the group. Uh, so whatever you hear here, let it stay here. Uh, and, you know, and seek opportunities to be a positive 
uh, influence on not just the children of the world, which, of course, we want to do. Uh, there are so many we need to protect, but also fellow survivors, because as, as, as good as we've gotten it so far, there will always be more fellow survivors who, um, you know, need, who, who will need uh, sort of the message that you've heard tonight. Uh, and so you're in an excellent place to share that experience, and I think being in the middle is the most comfortable place you can be. <laughs> so thank you very much for being here today. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. You bet. And thank Definitely. you to Lori, and thank you, Victoria, and thank you to everyone who listened to the show. This has been NASCA Scan Radio Show number 3107 with our special guest, founder of NASCA, Bill Murray. You can hear this again, if you like, on our website in the archives. All of our shows are in the archives. The website is N-A-A-S-C-A dot org. And that will take you out with some music. Mm-hmm.